First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. What a joy to sing with you. How beautiful to hear your voices. So grateful to Josh Hussung for the message that he brought last week on Christ's suffering for us, that he might bring us to God. So we're going to pick up today where Josh left off last week. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, and we're going to hear about our suffering for Christ's sake. Last week, Christ's suffering for our sake. This week, our suffering for Christ's sake. And we're going to hear an exhortation to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had when he suffered. There is one main theme in 1 Peter chapter 4, and it is to arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ in suffering. But right in the middle, there's a parenthesis. Beginning in verse 7 through verse 11, there's a parenthesis where Peter, once again, as he's already done a couple of times in 1 Peter, talked about suffering together as the church. And then he is back to our suffering for Christ. So, the next two Sundays from 1 Peter chapter 4, today we're going to talk about verses 1 through 6 and then skip to 12 through 19, our suffering for Christ, come back next week and talk about our suffering together, how we are a congregation together. If you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, I'll read those verses to us. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past, for the time past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's will. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to suffering for the will of God and for the name of Christ. Peter's given name is Simon. He's from Galilee. He was a married man. He was a fisherman by trade. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he came and he called and he assembled a small group of men who would become his apostles, his, his sent ones, his representatives. They were going to carry out his work. They were going to carry his word. They were going to lead his church and his authority while he was no longer on earth. And John chapter 1 tells us that Simon was one of those men. When Jesus saw Simon early in his ministry with that early encounter, he, he called Simon to become a follower. And when he did, he said to him, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, and Peter means rock. So that's why we call him Simon Peter. Simon's the name his parents gave him. Peter is the name Jesus gave him. Now during the 30-ish years between that initial call of Christ to Simon Peter and the writing of this letter to these congregations, Peter experienced suffering for the sake of Christ. He experienced the early tension of following Jesus. Maybe you remember that. I certainly do. I think I shared a bit of that a few weeks ago. Maybe you remember that early tension of following Jesus. What is this going to mean for me? How am I going to be accepted? What are people going to think? Peter felt that early tension of following Jesus because it meant for him leaving his business unattended for a while so that he could actually physically travel around with Jesus. And then there was the association that he had with Jesus when the religious leaders started to threaten him. And Peter must have wondered, is that threat coming his way? Is that, that danger coming his way? And then there was the cross itself. But of course, before the cross, there was the denial and there was disillusionment. And then after the cross, there was Peter's despair. This was a level of suffering that was in Peter's life due to one thing. He was a follower of Christ. Jesus actually gave him an opportunity at one point to turn away. He said, do you want to go away like all of the other people are leaving me? Peter said, no, where would we go? You have the words of life. If he had turned away, he could have avoided a lot of this, but he didn't. Now, Jesus rose from the dead. And we might think, oh, Jesus is alive. He's triumphed over death. The hardship of following Jesus is going to be over. What could go wrong now? But after 40 days, Jesus ascended into heaven. And he left Peter and the other apostles and the church on earth to preach the gospel to all the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and the other apostles did. They were filled with God's Spirit. They preached the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the same group of people who wanted to kill Jesus beat and jailed Peter. When he was released, he continued to preach. 
And he continued to serve the congregations. And he continued to suffer hardship for being a Christian and for being an apostle. And in the end, historical sources tell us that Peter was executed in Rome. His execution was like Jesus, a crucifixion. But unlike Jesus, sources tell us Peter's was upside down. And some sources tell us that it's possible that his wife was executed just prior to him. Now what's so interesting is that though Peter, in the second letter, second Peter, he lets us know that he knows his death is coming soon. Peter really doesn't write much about his own suffering. He writes about Christ's suffering. Because he's rejoicing in it. It's a suffering for us. But then he also writes about the suffering of the church because he wants to prepare the congregation for what's coming for them. And in so doing, Peter has given us and is giving us now a theology of suffering. We need a theology of suffering. A theology meaning we need God's word, God's thoughts about suffering. And it really started at the very beginning, although he didn't mention suffering in, like we're talking about in chapter 4. He didn't mention that in chapter 1, but he begins in chapter 1 with the theology of suffering by saying this, God, by grace and in mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now that you must hold on to if you're going to experience the sufferings of Christ faithfully. We're born again to a living hope caused caused by God and his grace. And Peter goes on to say, God made us to be his people, his chosen, elect, beloved ones on this earth. And he goes on to say that God then calls us to live in this world as his people in a certain way, to live in this world doing his will, being obedient to his word. To live in this world reflecting his goodness and his grace and his glory. That means to be a witness in this world. And by, do, by so doing, then others, like us, like us, others will be brought to repentance and faith in Christ. This is our sojourning life. This is God's call to us. It's an ever-growing family of God as Sinful people see the witness to Christ by other believers and come into faith who then become the witness of Christ so that others may come into faith. This is the sojourning life. This is God growing his church. But the world, like us also, before God caused us to be born again and made us his people and called us to follow and to live in this world, the world, like us, is hostile to God. Hostile to the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Hostile to the church. And what does this cause? Suffering. Some level of suffering. Being slighted by a friend or a family member. Reviled, ridiculed, opposed, silenced, shunned. It kind of escalates, doesn't it? Rights violated 
fines, jail, death. This has been the history of the church of Jesus Christ and still is today. But Christ, but, but Christians must respond. And those responses that Christians have towards suffering, they vary depending on the context, depending on the type of persecution. Sometimes, maybe you've experienced this, in the midst of some opposition to being a Christian, it's more of a personal slight, and so we just overlook it. We don't return evil for evil. We pray for someone, we smile, we go on. Christians certainly respond as well in public places by arguing and debating and persuading in forums that will influence people to respect the freedom of conscience and the freedom of speech and freedom of religion and belief and practice and actually then also to lead people to Christ. That's a wonderful response that we should have. And in other contexts, particularly ours in our day, in our history, in our country, we can appeal to laws. We actually can work to make laws ourselves, better laws, better policies that protect freedoms. And we can actually use the legal system to bring lawsuits when we're discriminated against for being Christians. And at times, it kind of escalates, doesn't it? At times in history, Christians, in order to be faithful to Christ, have actually had to disobey the laws, disobey policies in order to be faithful to Christ. And then when we do, as, as we've seen in church history and we read today, we count it all joy to suffer with Christ. So Peter's telling us these things, bringing to us a theology of suffering. And he tells us as we come to chapter 4 that in every context, using whatever means we do in responding to some sort of suffering for his name, we are to do this. Number one, we are to keep our response to suffering like Christ's. He says that in chapter 2 when he said Christ suffered, and in so doing, he actually gave you an example for you to follow. So we're to suffer like Christ. And he said in chapter 2 that we're to keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers. That means even when we're suffering. So the first thing he's telling us to do is keep our responses like Christ's. The second thing he tells us to do is keep our eyes on Christ. He says Christ gave you an example that you should follow. Last week we heard of Christ's suffering from chapter 3, verse 18. Josh did a wonderful job expounding what it means for Christ to suffer for us. And we're to keep our eyes on him. We're to look to him. We're to pray to him. Doing so will keep us humble when we suffer. When we suffer for Christ's name, we need humility because we have to remember that he saved us and he can save others also. It keeps us aware. He suffered. Why wouldn't we? We're following him. It keeps us hopeful. He was raised from the dead in glory. We will share his glory too. Keep our eyes on Christ. So that's as we come into chapter 4 and verse 1. Peter says we keep our eyes on Christ by considering Christ's suffering so that we will do this. Arm ourselves with the same way 
of thinking. That's the exhortation from this chapter. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Christ suffered in the flesh. Again, that was last week. He suffered in the flesh, which means he suffered in his body. The death of Jesus on the cross was real, in a real body. It wasn't something that happened out in a spiritual realm. It was flesh and blood on a cross, on a real day, marked on the calendar in history. He suffered in his flesh on a cross. That means it was substitutionary. He was there for us. As chapter 3 said, the righteous one, Jesus, on behalf of the unrighteous to bear the penalty for our sin in his own body, he suffered for our sins. He made atonement. He has removed them. He has covered them. It's a finished work. That's why Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. It's done. He did it. You can't do it. All we do is receive it. We repent. We believe. We embrace. We come to Christ We must stop once again right there. We're going to get to our suffering. We're going to get to arming ourselves with the same way of thinking, but we should never move past any declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ without rejoicing that our sins are forgiven, just like the song we sung just a moment ago. Praise his name. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Are your sins weighing on you or are they forgiven? Do your sins stare you in the face or do you know they have been crucified with Christ on the cross? If you trust him, you can be forgiven. If you repent and believe, he'll wash you clean. He'll make you a new person. He'll fill you you with the spirit of joy. He'll give you a future. Come to Christ. And then he says, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What does he mean by that? He means what Philippians 2 says. Have the same attitude that Jesus had when he suffered. Let the attitude that Jesus had when he suffered, let that attitude be your attitude. Your suffering for Christ's namesake is not exactly like Christ's suffering because Christ suffered for your sin. You cannot atone for your sin. So your suffering is not exactly like Christ's, but our attitude when we suffer is like Christ's. And we find it all through this chapter. It's set our minds on God's will. It is set joy before us that will result in our suffering. It is entrust ourselves to God or to set ourselves. He set himself in the hands of God, so we do. We're to arm ourselves with the same mindset as Christ. Arm yourselves, he says. That's battle language. Arm yourselves because you're in a spiritual battle. Sometimes people say to me, Scott, I think I'm going through spiritual warfare. What do you say? I say, duh. (laughs) Have you read Ephesians 6? (laughs) Of course. This is a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. 
people are involved. People are involved in the spiritual battle. But there's someone behind the people involved. It's a spiritual battle because there's a spiritual enemy. That's why he says, arm yourselves. Suffering for Christ is spiritual in nature. It's not just about someone laughing at you. Or it's not just about having something, a policy at your workplace that goes against your conscience and convictions. It is that, but it's not just that. It's not just what's going on in Burkina Faso or in China. It's a spiritual battle because Satan is behind it. And what we need to know, we can't get out of Genesis chapter 3 before we see it, is that Satan is opposed to Christ. It's futile. It is ludicrous for him to be so. His defeat is sure. He will be crushed. But he's fighting nonetheless. And he wants to use that suffering of Christians to oppose Christ. He wants to use it to stop Christians from honoring Christ. So it's a sober warning here. Don't go too quickly past it. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with what? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with a mind, a mindset, an attitude. And this will take some discipline. It'll take some training. But we must do it. We must be in the Word. This is where we find the mind of Christ, the mind of God. It's in the Word of God. We must be in the Word of God. We must be praying over this Word of God to get it deep into our souls so it starts to transform us and shape us and actually shape our thinking patterns. This is not natural to us. We must discipline ourselves to be with Christ's people and to speak the word to one another and to help one another. Rather than fanning the flame of our own anger, we must be together helping one another conform to the image of Christ to take on the mind of Christ. If we're gonna arm ourselves for this spiritual battle of suffering. The passage is giving us three ways to do so. I've already mentioned them. Here they are again, and then we'll look at them more closely. We must decide for the will of God. This was the mind of Jesus. Second, we must rejoice that we get to suffer with Christ. This was the mind of Jesus, joy. And third, we must entrust ourselves to God. This is what Jesus did. First, we arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking, by deciding to do God's will. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Decide. Decide in your mind that you will live for the will of God. Jesus did it. He did it all through his ministry, but he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest. 
He's in agony. He said, my soul is in agony to the point of death. He sweated in agony, in anxiety, in internal pain that is incomprehensible to to us to the point that blood came through the pores of his skin. He prayed this prayer three times. Father, if it's possible, remove the cup. What cup? Suffering. He's going to drink from the depths of soul suffering like no one has ever experienced. And he says, if it's possible, remove the cup, but not my will, but yours be done. Three times he prayed it. He decided for the will of God. Actually, he decided for the will of God before that night. Luke tells us that as he was approaching, as the day was approaching, Jesus turned, physically turned his body, looked toward Jerusalem. Luke says he set his face toward Jerusalem and he walked. And he knew where he was going. He was going to die. He knew that was God's will. And so he went. This is, this is the armament of the mind. It is the decision to give ourselves completely over to the will of God. He says in verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Suffered in the body. Whoever suffers in the body has ceased from sin. It's an interesting phrase. Three ways of understanding what this means to cease from sin. He's referring to, Peter's referring to the fact that we have union with Christ. means this, that we suffer with Christ in the flesh by dying with Him on the cross. We cease to sin by being dead to sin, buried with Christ through faith in Him on the cross, and then raised to walk in newness of life to seek the will of God. This is Romans chapter 6. He's also referring to the fact that ceasing from sin is what causes our suffering. When a Christian says, I'm done with sin, I'm breaking from the sinful pattern of my life, and I'm going to follow Christ, verse 4 he says, the world will malign you for that. They will, they will ridicule you and criticize you when you do not join in their debauchery. And he's talking about the sanctifying effect of suffering. There's something about suffering that causes us to focus on Christ. The psalmist said it in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. There's something, there's a sanctifying power that comes with suffering. Verse 2, the Christian must decide to live our days in this body, ceasing from sin and for the will of God. As the redeemed of God, we belong to God. We love God. And we give ourselves in our bodies and in our souls to the will of God. Christian, set your mind on God's will. He says in verse 3, time's up. Be done with the old self-lordship 
and the sins, that list of sins that come from self-lordship. There in verse 3, he says, be done with this. The time's up. Verse 4, he says, you have ceased from these sins. The question is, have we? And when we do, that will bring a level of suffering. We will be maligned for not joining in the same debauchery, the same self-lordship as the world. And we will actually suffer for saying these things are sinful. The questions that are asked today of Christians. Do you think that name the sin is a sin? And Christians look at their feet and start stammering. Yes. Immorality is immorality, and it's still sinful. And to say so, you will be maligned. But we're deciding for God's will. We're saying we're doing what He says. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Students, are you ready for this? Are you ready to step on a campus and choose God's will? You need to be, and He'll be with you, and we'll be with you. Don't give up. Don't compromise. God's here. God's in you. We're here. We'll be with you. Christian, be careful what you affirm. God's will. This is the armament of the mind. God's will. God's will above the spirit of the age. Decide for the will of God and don't go back and don't look back. The Word of God reveals the will of God. Read the Bible. Read it as it is. Read what it says. This is the mindset. It's the way of thinking that Christ had. Jesus said, it is written. That means He looked to the Old Testament and He found in the Old Testament that it was the will of God for him to suffer, namely Isaiah 53. He said, that's God's will. It is written, and then he said, the Son of Man must suffer. And then he set his face toward Jerusalem, and he went there. That was the mindset. Second, arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking by rejoicing that you get to share in his sufferings. That's verses 12 through 18. But first we'll, we'll talk about Hebrews chapter 12 because it says there that Jesus rejoiced. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What got Jesus to the cross? His mindset of the will of God and he put joy before him and he saw beyond the cross to the joy and what was that joy doing God's will and I have to believe at least part of the joy that Jesus saw on the other side of the cross was your face 
your face. He saw you on the other side of the cross. He died for you. And the joy of seeing you redeemed and forgiven got him through the cross. And the joy of doing the will of God and the joy of eternity, all that. But you and the apostles. I talked about Peter and the apostles and how they were beaten and jailed by the same people that wanted to kill Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, one account is this. They were thrown in jail, brought back out, put before the before the religious leaders and the religious leaders said you need to stop talking in Jesus name just stop it no more Jesus name talk about silencing no more Jesus name and they said you figure out who we should obey we've already decided we're going to obey God and they the religious leaders beat them and then it says they went away Quote, they left the council, that's after being beaten, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Worthy, not of being honored, but worthy of being dishonored because they were being dishonored for the name of Christ. They rejoiced to share in that suffering. Jesus told us to do it. He said, when they persecute you on my account, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven, and you get to join the ranks of the prophets. Verse 12 of our text, he says, don't be surprised. Verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Don't be surprised. He's going to tell us in chapter 5, be watchful. Speaking of a fiery trial, a persecution, that was, that's been experienced by Christians. It's been experienced, it was experienced by the, by the three Hebrew children long before Jesus ever came, and it was literal. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar set up a golden image and told the Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, told everybody, but including them, bow. <laughs> so the golden image came by, and all the music was playing, and everybody was bowing, and there's three Hebrew children standing there, just straight. And you know, if you haven't read it, go home and read it. It's Daniel 3. It's a fascinating story. They go through a lot of conversation. At the end of the, end of the time, the three Hebrew children say, we're not, we're not bowing. And so the king throws them into a literal, literal furnace of fire. And as he looks in the fire that was so hot that it burned, it killed the men trying to throw them in the fire. But they're in the fire and they're standing there with a fourth man. That is, to me, one of the most precious images in all the Bible of God's sovereign love and care for his people in suffering. Nebuchadnezzar says, I threw three men in the fire and I see four. And they're talking. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with us. Let us not be surprised nor fearful, but rather let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that we have the honor, verse 13 and 14, of suffering for the name of Christ. Let us rejoice because there is the promise of the glory to come. Romans 8, the glory will far outweigh the suffering. In other words, you'll forget all about it someday. 
Let us press on to endure that we might reign with him, 2 Timothy 2. Rejoice. Let us rejoice because verse 14 tells us that when we suffer for the name, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. What does it look like for God's spirit to be on a person? You may have the image in your mind coming from whatever background you come from, if you come from a church background, that a, a, a spirit-filled person looks like this. Maybe it's stern and serious. Maybe it's ecstatic and lively. Here it says, the one who suffers for the name will have the spirit of glory and of God resting rejoice rejoice that you will be saved in the end verse 18 there's a judgment that is coming for those who do not obey the gospel the judgment is unto death but judgment has begun with the house of God the household of God and that means that now God is disciplining his church for the purpose of holiness because he intends for his church to share in the salvation and the glory of Christ rejoice brothers and sisters joy in suffering is not natural it's not and if you're fearing if you're saying like I have like I said especially when I was a young Christian I kept saying, what if I suffer? Could I hold up? What if it came to me? Would I, would I be able to stand? I have no confidence in the flesh. I have no confidence that I will be able to stand. But I have all confidence, all confidence that the spirit of glory that rests, that may rest, that will rest upon me and upon you, he will keep us. God's grace will be sufficient in the moment. Let's fix our eyes on Christ. Let's set the joy before us. Let's, let's have the spirit of, of obedience to Christ. Let's look to the saints who went before us. They experienced every human emotion that we will. Of course, anxiety. Of course, some kind of apprehension. Of course, wondering. But then at the same time, resting because we know our Father will keep us. And then third, finally, arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking by entrusting your soul to God who is your faithful creator. Remember Jesus. Peter tells us in chapter 2 that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't get hostile toward people because... Chapter 2, verse 23 of 1 first, first Peter, he, continued, he continually entrusted himself to God. Well, when did he do that and what did it look like? At least one place, Luke tells us it was from the cross. When Jesus is dying, I mean to the last breath, he had three breaths left. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. I give you everything. 
And here Peter is telling us in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Commit ourselves, body, soul, to the care and the trust of God our creator, God our redeemer, God our sustainer, God our Father. Until we entrust ourselves to Him, we can't really trust our response to suffering for Him. But when we entrust ourselves to Him, we can trust Him that He will absolutely see us through. Come to Christ this morning. He suffered for you. He died for you. He saw your face on the other side of that cross. He loves you. And when you repent and turn to Christ, He will embrace you. You will be embraced by the arms of Jesus. And when you do, you'll be brought in to union. The sharing, the sharing of the life, of the suffering, of the death, and of the glory of Christ. Christ.